Welcome to False Flag Weekly News, the weekly news show that's so revealing that they have to throttle my internet to try to slow it down. I'm Kevin Barrett with Kat McGuire. Hey, welcome, Kat. How are you doing? Hey, hi. Sorry we're broadcasting 10 minutes late. Uh, for some reason, my internet got throttled. I had to go to the backup plan, but here we are. All right. So where do we start? Well, we always start at False Flag Weekly News with disclaimers and uh, various other and sundry announcements. So we question things here. If questioning is too disturbing, go and be undisturbed somewhere else because, as you see in our next slide, we are very disturbing. We ask disturbing questions. During the first part of the show, we even ask disturbing questions about medical issues, which is absolutely verboten these days. So if that's too much for you, go elsewhere. Uh, we are not doctors. Well, I'm a doctor of um, Arabic and Islamic studies and African studies and stuff like that. So don't take my medical advice. Okay, are we done? Let's go to the, uh, here's our image of the week. Please, people, you got to help False Flag Weekly News stymie this Al-Qaeda plot to sit back and enjoy the collapse of the United States. If Al-Qaeda succeeds in making False Flag Weekly News disappear because our thousands of viewers can't come up with a chump change to buy Muse the Cat his cat food, the collapse of the West will be complete. Do not let this happen. The future of civilization depends on you. So please give generously, give often. Meow! Give me cat food! All right, that's our announcement from Use the Cat, and let's get going with a few more public service announcements here. 9-11 Truth Film Festival coming up next Thursday, September 9th. Um, that will be at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland, California, happening pretty much all day from early afternoon through the late evening. And you know the USA hasn't completely collapsed yet, because the 9-11 True Film Festival is still going, and lots of other events, too. Observing the 20th anniversary of the false flag that changed the world. Here's the Lawyers Committee live stream happening on September 11th itself. And Barbara Honiger talked about that and the other 9-11 events. There are actually more of them uh, on my radio show last night. People can find that by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the radio show link. All right, so that's the that's the... Obligatory announcements, disclaimers, and so on. Let's get to the stuff you're not allowed to talk on YouTube. We're not, we're not on YouTube now, Kat, so we can actually talk about this pretty freely. Uh, first COVID-related medical story. Robert David Steele passed away this week. Um, Allah Yerhamhu. He was a very interesting, provocative uh, guy, and we will miss him. Former CIA officer. And, of course, the mainstream media had a field day bashing him for being uh, anti-vax and a COVID hoaxer and all of this sort of thing, which is really a, not a very nice thing to do, especially with a, a guy who like this who was right, you know, about 80, 90 percent of uh, the things that he looked into over the years. So we will miss Robert David Steele. Um, I will especially miss his work around uh, pedophilia. I think he did a lot of very noble, righteous work of uh, bringing that um, to uh, people's attention. I agree. Although, frankly, I mean, we, we may disagree about this, but I, I found his work up through 2016 actually better. And then once he, he started to jump on the Michael Bloomberg train, thinking Michael Bloomberg was the savior who would solve all our problems, I kind of thought that was going a little too far. And then he jumped on the Trump train and uh, QAnon became his vehicle for exposing the elite pedophilia. And I think there are problems with all of those things. So in the last several years of his life, my views diverged from his quite a bit. But um, I still uh, am going to miss him a lot. I wish I'd gotten a chance to see him again. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, 
That relates, of course, to the issue of uh, did Robert David Steele die of COVID? He Was he really a skeptic about the existence of COVID? All these sorts of questions. And uh, we're getting all kinds of propaganda in the mainstream that's actually pushing thinking people like Robert David Steele to the opposite end of the spectrum. It's so counterproductive to be propagandizing, propagandizing us with this idiotic stuff. Uh, latest uh, propaganda, the CDC is saying, don't travel over Labor Day if you're unvaccinated, because if you do, Al-Qaeda will cackle gleefully. And that's why the Department of Homeland Security will be swarming all over our nation's airports with sniffer dogs who can detect the unvaccinated from 100 feet away. That's right. Those unvaxxed terrorists attempting to visit relatives during Labor Day will be sent to special mobile gas chamber units deployed in the underground floors of airport parking garages, where they will be gassed, buried, dug up, burned, reburied, and reburned until all forensic traces have been eliminated. It's the perfect crime, wahaha. And by reducing the unvaxxed population by approximately 6 million, the new CDC DHS Super Department, henceforth to be known as the Department Center for Disease Homeland Security Control, that's the DEC DHCS, expects to dramatically improve public health while limiting the spread of medical misinformation. This has been a public service announcement. We now return to our regular programming. So, Kat, I certainly hope that people like you won't even think about traveling over the Labor Day weekend after you heard that. Well, I hope they include all the unvast, unmasked migrants. Are they going to be checking those? But what's also interesting is August 11th, the CDC advised against traveling to very high risk countries due to the alleged danger of COVID spread. And what's interesting is that the worst nations to go to for the surge are also the most highly vaccinated. So why didn't the CDC warn us when they said uh, don't travel? What are the high risk states we shouldn't be going to? Uh, the, the bottom line is that they they speak of this thing as if it's all a permanent pan- pandemic. We have perma war, permanent war. Well, we're about to see a perma pandemic never ends. Indeed. And of course, there are legitimate discussions about just, you know, how, uh, how bad it is. I mean, so, you know, at one, uh, one side of this argument, we have people, um, like our producer, Ellen, who would say that, well, yeah, it is pretty much, you know, if it kills one out of a hundred people, your own chances as an individual aren't so bad. The chances of one of your, say, four person family, uh, actually dying are one in 25 ish, maybe depending on how old they are, maybe more, maybe less. That's actually pretty bad. And uh, the chance of somebody in your community, that's really bad. And then the chances that your hospital might fill up is even worse. So there is that, you know, there's a way of reading the numbers that actually says this is, you know, this bioweapon, it, it hit the sweet spot. It's it's kind of deniable because each individual is probably not going to die from it. But the larger aggregate number of people killed is going to be just huge. And so it's created this total catastrophe situation where they just don't know how to respond to it. And, um, I mean, I, I would say the bottom line here is that all of this kind of discussion is a huge distraction from the real issue. The real issue is if we don't track down the people who made this bioweapon and released it and take them out of action and take everybody else like them out of action permanently, like lifetime prison sentences at minimum, it doesn't really matter what we do. We might as well just go ahead and die from this because we're going to die from something anyway because worse is is coming. So I, I really do think that should be the issue. Like, really, we should just spend this whole show telling people to go out and track down those bastards that, that created this thing in the lab. Yep, yep, sounds good to me. I'd, I'd get aboard on that. Okay. So next story, Natural News uh, gives us the secondhand report from Mark Crispin Miller about uh, 
the mainstream media is hyping the vaccine, the, the COVID deaths of black people while undermining or underplaying the vaccine deaths of black people. Now, I thought, Kat, that this particular story in natural news was not entirely uh, fair and balanced and so on. Um, and, and also some of the information in this story, okay, it's, it's kind of, uh, if indeed it's true that a lot more people, including black people, are dying from actual COVID, uh, like Robert Davis still probably did, as opposed to those dying from vaccines, which is probably a smaller number, perhaps considerably smaller, uh, this anecdotes about, oh, here's somebody who died from a vaccine, here's somebody who died from a vaccine, are really meaningless. You need numbers to actually make any sense of this. And this whole thing doesn't give us any numbers. It just gives us anecdotes. Well, it's not just this article. That's the problem overall is that um, nobody really knows the actual vaccine death certificates because the CDC isn't releasing them. They're in the VAERS database, but the Harvard study showed that the VAERS database that tracks them only gets about up to at most 10%. So we really don't even know how to um, assess this statistically because the CDC will not share its numbers. But um I didn't pay as much attention to um, um, this Mike Adams's report. I'm more interested in Mark Crispin Miller's wonderful report that it links to. And uh, he did a very good study. It wasn't celebrities per se. It's more uh, community influencers. And the main thing about that was um, they had all the influence in the world until they died. And then suddenly uh, nobody wanted to talk about what they died of. Um, and in terms of a, uh, an actual celebrity, let's not forget Hank Aaron. Nobody's talking about him at all anymore in terms of uh, he had just taken the vax and died. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the question marks about this whole topic, and, and it comes up in this article, is the article reports somebody uh, dying a couple of days or something after uh, getting vaxxed. And then the story is they died of COVID. And actually, according to the mainstream line, that's, not particularly uh, impossible because they what they tell us is that people's immune system do, doesn't respond to the vaccine and you're not really protected for at least I think it's like three weeks after you get vaccinated. So it would be perfectly normal for people to be dying of COVID during the three weeks after they've been vaccinated, according to the official line. Right. Well, that's what they're finding more and more is that it's the vaccinated who have the uh, COVID. It's not. Uh, well, no, what they say is after three weeks, once once the uh, antibodies are there from the vaccine, then uh, the chances of people dying or being hospitalized are dramatically reduced. Uh, well, I, I don't know about that. I, I think there's a lot of things that can happen even after three weeks. Um, but I would like to say that um, I've been working on something called um, the Freedom Brigades, um, here in New York to go out into the boroughs um, to um, bring information to people who are only getting mainstream information. We pass out flyers. And the, the point I want to say is that nationally, um, 70% of black people are not taking the vaccines. So a lot of the borough, the, the, our targeted boroughs are the under-vaccinated people who aren't getting it to give them support and say, no, you don't have to. And especially the communities of color, the African-American communities, it's unbelievable. I would say uh, almost 90% of the people in some of those communities that I'm going to that are mostly black are totally not taking it. They're like, we don't want it at all. Thanks for your flyer, as opposed to communities uh, like the Upper West Side, this very uh, white liberal 
uh, we can't even go there without getting heckled. Mm, that's interesting. So when we talk about vaccine apartheid, it does have that racial uh, coloration as well, just like original apartheid did. Um, that's, that's very interesting. Well, I, uh, Alan, our producer, wants me to tell folks that uh, I actually I've had COVID. I got COVID back uh, in early July and uh, it wasn't any fun. Now I'm naturally immune and I'm not I don't really regret the uh, the whole thing, but it is kind of nasty. It's very hard on your lungs. And uh, so anyway, um, uh, Alan being a bit older than me uh, and probably he doesn't, you know, play one on one basketball with his kid and do 50 push ups a day and swim every day and stuff like that, like I do. And, you know, lead a ridiculously uh, healthy life. So I, I don't think Alan was at all wrong to choose to get vaccinated. I mean, maybe he'll drop dead of the New World Order uh, stuff, you know, at some point. But God willing, he won't. Uh, anyway, it's it's uh, he, he wanted me to say that because because and Kat, I should credit you for saving my life because I drink uh, pine needle tea every single day and I love it. And I still do now. It's great stuff. Okay, great. I wouldn't advise anyone to get a vaccination, this COVID vaccination ever. It is a um, grand laboratory experiment if you want to be a guinea pig in something that has gene therapy and fetal tissue in it and all kinds of other stuff. They won't even tell us the ingredients. I would never get a vaccine. It has nothing to do with health at all. Well, I, I also have chosen to be in the control group. I don't regret that. <laughs> uh but, um, you know, I'm looking at, uh, I look at the world, I look at numbers, I make suppositions, and I just don't think at this point we really know how it's all going to play out in the end. Uh, it, we, it could very well turn out that one, the anti-vax side is absolutely right, and it, and it could turn out the other way around that they're not. We don't really know for sure at this point. Um, well, when the makers of it, like uh, Dr. Robert Malone says, don't take it, he made the mRNA. And when the head of Pfizer for 14 years, Dr. Michael Yeaton says, do not take this vaccine, I would listen to them before I would my local family doctor who has been completely indoctrinated. Mm -hmm. And certainly I wouldn't listen to the insane mainstream propaganda. At least I would listen. I wouldn't listen to it without listening to critiques of it as well. Uh, and another guy who's not listening to the over the top, nasty, ultra one sided mainstream propaganda is this Ohio judge who just ordered that a COVID-19 patient be treated with ivermectin. Uh, the deal here is that the family wanted uh, ivermectin for this guy who apparently is in a very late stage in a bad shape on a respirator and I think even maybe a medically induced coma. And the hospital refused to fill the doctor's prescription, which is kind of ridiculous at that point. And although the chances that ivermectin is going to help this guy, I think, are probably pretty slight, too. In any case, the judge said, yes, you need to fill the prescription. And this has been an issue around ivermectin, which, uh, you know, what the mainstream authorities say doesn't work. The studies actually indicate that maybe it does, at least somewhat, although there's uh, there are conflicting studies. And the weird thing is that it's been almost banned. Um, like, <laughs> why is that? Why is it, you know, it, it's been used for huge numbers of people. I think it's like hundreds of millions of people have used it. Uh, it's not a horse drug, like the mainstream nonsense uh, says. So why is there such an over-the-top campaign against it? Why do you think it? Uh, because it's effective and it's safe. Um, it has uh, decades of being safe. Actually, in the CDC's own history, they have been using it for years, and all of a sudden now they're not. Um, and it's very inexpensive. 
um, throughout most of the world, but actually the cost is going up. I have ivermectin and, um, I found it very expensive. I didn't renew my prescription actually because it was about $400 for three months, which is just over the top ridiculous. But there, um, Joe Rogan got COVID and he healed with ivermectin, but of course they ridiculed it and called it a horse dewormer drug, which it is, but, um, dogs and cats, um, hydrate with water. Are we not going to take water now because other animals use it? Um, it has many other uses. It's been highly effective for curing river blindness. So there's nothing wrong with it. They just don't want it uh, to be used widely because uh, um, they won't make their billions if uh, we don't use their um, uh, toxic uh, medicines. Mm-hmm. Well, a couple of experts that I respect do uh, urge people to use ivermectin for COVID, but as early as possible or even as a prophylactic. So be that as it may, when I, I look at the numbers, I'm not sure it works very much. Frankly, I'll take my pine needle tea. In any case, <laughs> uh, do we, oh yeah, one more vaccine story here before we get into the stuff we're allowed to talk about on YouTube. Uh, well, how about this massive crash, a vaccine crash, 1.3 million doses, uh, from a truck headed to Ghana. Well, the truck wasn't headed to Ghana. The doses were headed to Ghana. The truck crashed near Dulles Airport and a hazmat team was brought in to clear up the oil and antifreeze for 21 hours. Apparently, they've recovered the vaccine, or at least the West Virginia Center for Preparedness says so, but it's unknown how much was saved. It's also unknown how much has been contaminated with oil and antifreeze. So now the people in Ghana will get extra potent vaccine uh, full of oil and antifreeze. Well, this is pretty weird. The press was not allowed anywhere new near it. One witness said um, he saw all kinds of cleanup crews that he'd never heard of. But if it's just uh, oil and uh, what was it? Oil and uh, something. Ant- antifreeze, which is antifreeze. bad stuff. I don't want that then, in my vaccine. Well, <laughs> I don't want my vaccine would, at all. <laughs> okay. Well, why would the airspace have to be cleared? Is oil going to waft upwards? Um, and I looked into this Department of Preparedness because the article says it's part of DOD. Um, well, I found it under FEMA, and they have a program called the Office of Laboratory Services, which is part of a, quote, network of laboratories for surveillance and response. Well, what are they really doing? What If it was just uh, uh, vaccines, how could it be that dangerous? Um, the happy ending of all this is that the good people of Ghana have been spared 1.3 million doses of gene therapy. You don't think they're going to send them the uh, oil antifreeze contaminated stuff that they swept off the highway? It'll probably be encased in that, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you just, I don't really trust these people. Um, That's (laughs) the bottom line here. In any case, moving on to the FDA versus the CDC. Apparently the FDA uh, or some of their top people are pissed off because the CDC has been given power that the FDA is supposed to have. So um, apparently the CDC stepped in and uh, at the behest of the White House said, you got to approve those booster shots. And the CDC, or rather the FDA people, whose job it is to decide these things, said no way and stepped down. What, what do you make of this, Ken? Well, some people are saying they resigned to avoid jail time because all of this is just one big toxic injection. But um, the FDA execs are all pro-vax, and what they were saying is they felt that their agency needed to be transparent and do thorough reviews. 
Well, what that's clearly saying is that there's been no transparency all at, at all, all along. Um, and the uh, executives should also know that these vaccines have a limited shelf life and that they're not 100% effective. So they're concerned about these boosters that have never gotten testing, as if the original ones ever did. Um, they didn't either. None of them have been tested. So the press is missing the real story that they pretending that they're now approved vaccines. None of them have been properly tested. So it's it's all a crapshoot. I wouldn't go near any of them, and I'm glad I get to say it now before we get on CensorTube. Okay, well, that means it's time for us to go on to CensorTube, where we are not allowed to say anything medical, so we can complain all we want about vaccine passports and mandates from a civil liberties perspective. But while doing so, we're not allowed to make any kind of statements or speculations about how well uh, such medical approaches might or might not work, uh, which medical approaches are better than which, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, much less uh, cast aspersions on any uh, possible hoaxes or anything like that. So here we go with the part of False Flag Weekly News that we're allowed to broadcast on YouTube. And fortunately, at this point, we're still allowed to talk honestly about 9-11. It's the 20th anniversary, and we are not going to be taken out by drones for discussing <laughs> what we really think about 9-11. So first 9-11 story, this is supposedly – well, speaking of breaking news, I just got an email, cap that said that the headline was completely bizarre. It said, a guy takes credit for 9-11 explosives on counterpunch. Um, so apparently there's a counterpunch article from a couple days ago, Confessions of a Secret Controlled Demolition Special Operative. However, I would guess that's probably – um, a, a lame attempt at satire because of counterpunch being what it is. In any case, this is the real breaking news, and it's really not very big news either. Biden signs the executive order demanding the Justice Department declassify FBI stuff on two of the alleged 19 hijackers, none of whom were on any planes. Uh, and the whole point is to direct the family members towards blaming Saudi Arabia rather than the people who really did it, neoconservative Zionists. I think it's just a form of uh, placating the family members to keep them quiet. Um, I think this is going to be about as effective when Trump said that he was going to release the JFK files and nothing really came of it. Some things were released, but uh, not the true family jewels. And that's going to be the same with this. It's just more pandering. Well, what would be interesting is if somehow um, this stuff led to the truth about the fact that these two alleged hijackers, there were patsies who were sent from Saudi Arabia uh, at the behest of the United States uh, and its wonderful Middle Eastern ally, not Saudi Arabia, uh, to eventually take credit for the 9-11 operation. And so these two guys were set up in San Diego, uh, ostensibly with a little help from a couple of people connected to the Saudi government. However, uh, one of them, uh, the, the main guy, uh, actually was working for the CIA and, and Israel, according to his nephew. Uh, everybody in that family knows that this guy that they're saying was a Saudi agent was actually working for the United States government. So, um, and I had him on my radio show talking about that. So this whole thing is a, is a big farce. Uh, blame the Saudis limited hangout. Um, and it's, uh, let, let's move to a bigger story. Here's a real 9-11 20th anniversary story that actually matters. And that is Spike Lee may have made the best film of his life, the 30-minute segment on controlled demolitions, 
and suddenly it got torpedoed. It got spiked. Uh, the, uh, this would have been uh, an amazing film. And now only the people who caught it during the first day or two, it was up before they spiked it will ever be allowed to see it. It seems, um, because of this mainstream media, uh, lynching party that went after Spike Lee by way of Richard Gage, by way of some guy who went to a Richard Gage event and said that the U S and Israel did nine 11, which is actually true. And then they're claiming that that's a terrible thing to say and that anybody, some guy who shows up at a Richard Gage event and says that means that Richard Gage himself is an evil anti-Semite. They don't care if he's (laughs) anti-American. The whole thing is disgusting. It's insane. You know, I wish Spike Lee would really find a way to push back against this, but he probably won't because he works in Hollywood and we know who runs Hollywood. I just can't believe that there are people who... Um, he didn't know to stay away from 9-11. Uh, don't they know that your your forum will get shut off, your funding sources? Um, I, I just can't believe that he didn't know that that's true, that, that they're shocked. That, I'm shocked that people today still don't know that, that he was really naive that you'll get destroyed. Um, but in my book, he will forever be a coward in history because he uh, he backed down and I think he had the power to say no. But finally, he was woken up to the actual consequences that others are facing. But he, the New York Times, nobody can, and Hollywood can't unring that bell for him. He knows what he knows. And so he has to live with that. And maybe at some point he'll find his backbone and come forward with a, a, his, the, you know, they have the, the movie and then the making of the movie. Come on, Spike, let's see the making of this and what went into your uh, being muzzled. Well, I would guess there's at least a 50-50 chance that they threatened his family. Like some some, uh, mafia-connected Hollywood guy and all the big producers there are probably called him up, somebody that he knows pretty well, and said something like, you know, if you keep going in this direction, if you don't pull this 30-minute segment, we can't guarantee the security of your family. You know, that's the kind of thing they do. So it's, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, but we don't know all the details. I I just hope he figures out uh, an effective way to push back. Who knows? So... Anyway, here just we just, we're going through some of the stories about this. Um, here's the Washington Post telling us that this is a warning because all of these conspiracy theories are out there. Oh, it's terrible! It's terrible! We have to find a way to censor everything to make sure nobody can say any of these things. It's so the Washington Post. I mean, no wonder they're so hysterical because pretty soon people are going to be carrying torches and pitchforks up to the headquarters of the Washington Post, and they as well they should be. Um, so let, let's go through these stories. There are a whole bunch of Spike Lee stories. This was my story here uh, for American Free Press, which I posted early over at my Substack. Um, and uh, this, is, this is the kind of thing that really it'd be nice if I could get a little more circulation on these stories. Uh, the other side of the story of 9-11 is just not uh, very widely available anymore, thanks to all of the Internet censorship, the complete censorship of big media, the publishing industry, and so on and so forth. Um, so let's, let's move on to the, uh, Philip Zellico story. So the reason that they're censoring 9-11 so brutally is to try to keep control of the public myth. Zellico being the expert on the creation and maintenance of public myths, like the myth of the uh, dastardly Japan, Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, and then the new Pearl Harbor of 9-11, where he became not only, he probably wrote the script for 9-11, 
he knew about it ahead of time. He published an article in Foreign Affairs with John Deutsch a couple of years ahead of time, speculating about what would be the likely political, cultural, historical consequences of the destruction of the World Trade Center in a massive terror attack. And uh, then he became nominated as and, and approved as the 9-11 czar. He's the 9-11 cover-up czar. And now he's the COVID cover-up czar. He's doing the COVID commission. They're setting up a COVID commission, just like the 9-11 commission, to get at the so-called truth, their truth, uh, of what's really going on. And obviously what it'll do is cover up for the criminals who made COVID in a lab and probably unleashed it in an attack on China and Iran in the same way it's covering up for the criminals who blew up the World Trade Center to unleash the American military on the enemies of Israel. Zelikow himself admitted that it was all about Israel. He said, who cares about Saddam Hussein? I'll tell you who cares. It's the Israelis, but that's a hard sell to Americans. So we're just going to have to lie to them. They came right out and said that. Uh, this guy is another guy who deserves torches and pitchforks at his front door. And how much you want to bet there's not a single vaccine safety advocate on this task force? Yeah. <laughs> well, no kidding. Just like there isn't this, just like they didn't put David Griffin on the 9-11 commission. <laughs> right. It's all rubber stamping. Yeah. And this isn't even official. I think they're just like um, floating it um, as sort of a dress rehearsal. Let's see what will fly on the first unofficial go around so that when the official one convenes, they've got it all locked up. Okay. Philip Zelikow, uh, let's, let's take a moment to, uh, to give Philip Zelikow our respects. Uh, here on the occasion of the solemn 20th anniversary of 9-11. Philip, this is for you. Okay, speaking of people to give respects to, how about Larry Silverstein? Uh, here's Larry, 90 years old and still going strong, thanks to his daily adrenochrome shots. Uh, here he is in the Times of Israel. Now, why is Larry and his real estate empire in New York so interesting to the Times of Israel? Well, it's because Larry Silverstein, the confessed criminal, who blew up Building 7 and collected three-quarters of a billion dollars in insurance money on it, even though he confessed to blowing it up himself, is a national hero in Israel for participating in the murder of 3,000 Americans to launch the U.S. military to destroy Israel's enemies. Just like James Jesus Angleton is a national hero in Israel with a statue in Tel Aviv, a hero for orchestrating the JFK assassination to take out the roadblock to Israel's nuclear weapons. He's a hero in Israel. Are they going to build a statue to Larry Silverstein and have a legend pull it or something? I mean, this is beyond belief that this guy is still alive. Well, he had uh, weekly Sunday talks with BB, so of course he's elevated to that level. And I'm wondering if that's what uh, got him the actual bid, because another competitor won that bid and then curiously dropped out to go on another real estate project with Bloomberg. Why would he walk away from the World Trade Center? It was like, did um, Bloomberg and uh, Lucky Larry kind of confer and say, uh, well, let's let Larry have it. Larry, you take this one. You get to have it. it, it, it there, there's just so many shady things around this uh, Larry Silverstein. I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. Well, yeah, he's, he's a porn king. I mean, he's sex industry magnate. That's where he made his money originally. And then he laundered it through real estate, and that's how he became a so-called real estate magnate. He wasn't much of a magnate until he made his billions on 9-11 with a controlled demolition and an insane level of insurance fraud, doubling the insurance when he bought it two months before the demolitions. Uh, the biggest white elephant in real estate history on earth of the Towers were full of asbestos. It would have cost billions to scrape it all off. He would have lost everything if he hadn't blown up his own buildings and walked off with billions of dollars in insurance money. On In this story, he lies and says, we paid $3.2 billion to acquire the trade center. B.S., Larry. 
he, Larry himself paid something like 13 or 14 million with an M. Uh, and then he had a, his friends put in another hundred uh, million with an M or so. That's all they put down. And they walked off with billions because they did double indemnity. Two separate and unrelated terror events, the two planes and the, and the judge Hellerstein, uh, with his whole family over in Israel, rubber stamped that. Larry walked off with billions and now he owns the whole place. I mean, he made out like a bandit. In this story, they repeat his, his excuse for not getting killed on 9-11. He ate breakfast every day at the top of the North Tower, but on 9-11, oh, his wife just happened to remember he had a dermatology appointment. Oh my goodness. I'm sick of this guy. I'm sick of him. Yeah. <laughs> Get him off the stage. Get him off the stage. Okay. Well, uh, maybe we'll get him off the stage legally. That's what Dave Meiswinkle and Mick Harrison of the Lawyers Committee uh, for 9-11 Inquiry are trying to do. And they just are filing an appeal now. Uh, the co-plaintiffs include Bob McElvain, who lost his son Bobby in the controlled demolition of the Trade Center. He was on my radio show last night. Uh, and this uh, appeal they're they're appealing the southern district of new york court's ruling that basically just threw them out uh, they have no right to see the grand jury look into the controlled demolition of the trade center biggest crime ever in american history and you can't even look into it with a grand jury well i um have a kind of a different opinion i actually think it was fortunate that the case was dismissed on procedural grounds and they're going to have to go that route because i actually was opposed to this lawsuit think if they had gotten a negative decision on the merits. The movement could never live that down. Opponents would say, you had your day in court, end of subject. Why would you risk that? Um, so now they sort of have no choice to appeal it, but that's like chasing good money after bad. Imagine, if you will, the 9-11 movement had a national board of directors. So of all possible actions its members would choose to rally around, would they really greenlight the foolhardy strategy of going to a grand jury petition in the New York City courts, which is, is just so going to get out, but... It just seems really unfair that the 9-11 movement is so emasculated that a handful of lawyers could dictate uh, legal strategy. I'm sure they're well-intentioned, but in my opinion, it's unfair and unprincipled for a small group of people to make such consequential uh, decisions affecting 9-11's history, because at this point in time, um, if it had been um, judged on the merits, it would have been a, a death knell for those of us continuing to trying to put forth that 9-11 um, was an inside job. Um, and and it, I, I just don't think it's a good strategy to go into the courts, especially a grand jury where you have your hands completely tied, as they say, um, um, the, the prosecutors could indict a ham sandwich. That's really the forum that you want to take the whole movement into. So I'm kind of glad that it um, that the judge uh, ruled against it and they can appeal on the procedural issues, but the merits of that, uh, if they had a huge um, swell of people behind it um, that they could force opinion on some level, but we don't have that right now. So it's a really, really risky strategy that I don't think is a good thing to do. Well, you could be right about that, Kat. That's the kind of thing that Bill Pepper has uh, said many times, William Pepper being the guy who won the court case proving that the U.S. government, and CIA, FBI, and U.S. military murdered Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, that's actually an official jury decision now. Uh, and he got that because he knew how to look for the right court venue and so on. He always said that 
the Southern District of New York is probably not the right court venue for this. It's the most corrupt in the country, and it's corrupt precisely because it's controlled by the kosher Nostra that did that blew up the trade towers. Um, but on the other hand, if you get into a courtroom, you do get discovery. So, but yeah, shopping for the right courtroom is probably important, and this may not be the right courtroom. In any case, I'll leave that to our viewers to uh, to make up their own minds, and I'll have on people like Mick Harrison and Dave Meiswinkle to defend themselves on this, and I already have in the past. Let's let's move on to the COVID dystopia stories. Uh, so 9-11 was the false flag, the mother of all false flags, and some are telling us there could be another huge false flag. Switzerland is warning that there could be a 9-11 scale attack on vaccine sites. Wait a minute. Are there are there 110 uh, story vaccine sites that are going to get blown up? I hope not. In any case, uh, if that happened, uh, the one thing that we could be sure of is that the official story would be as full of holes as Swiss cheese. But I don't know. Do you, do you see a 9-11 vaccine incident happening in Switzerland? Can't, frankly, I don't. Um, I don't think it's about 9-11, but I do think it's about the health freedom movement. And uh, we are directly in their crosshairs right now. Um, I'm actually part of investigation committee. Um, it's it's far more than anything I've seen with 9-11. The health freedom movement is being very infiltrated because all they want is a body, um, just like with the, the trumped up literally trumped up capital uh, protesters, of which um, almost uh, 500 are sitting in prison now. And they want to align anybody who's opposed to the COVID vaccination completely with who they've already said are domestic uh, um, extremists and terrorists. So, yes, I would not doubt that they are going to bundle 9-11, the capital protesters, and the health freedom movement around safe vaccines, not their um, toxic, not, not the, excuse me, not the COVID vaccine. They're trying to align it all together. And yes, it is highly probable. And somebody as measured as um, James Corbett would not come out with something so strong if there wasn't, uh, where there's smoke, there's fire. And I'm deeply involved in all of this. And I think um, what he did was a very good public service uh, message. Well, I'm, I'm not going to cast aspersions on Jane Corbett for uh, issuing this warning because I can see that the benefits that the usual suspects might imagine they could gain with a big false flag targeting anti-vaxxers. I mean, if they wanted to radically change the policy and put in vaccine mandates, uh, just, you know, they, they could theoretically do a governmental nationwide vaccine mandate. Everybody has to get vaxxed, period. And they couldn't possibly do that now. But if there were a false flag in which rogue anti-vaxxer terrorists were blamed for something horrible, maybe they would think they could. So, yeah, I think we have to take this seriously. Um, hope it doesn't happen. I doubt it'll happen, but uh, you never know. <laughs> so more uh, outrageous COVID dystopia news. How about the uh, judge who just out of the blue uh, went after a woman in a custody case uh, to see if she was vaccinated, and when she said no, she had uh, medical reasons. Their doctor told her she shouldn't be vaccinated. She'd had adverse reactions to vaccinations in the past. The judge, uh, Cook County Judge James Sapiro, ordered the woman, Rebecca Thirlit, to be vaccinated. And if she isn't, she can't see her son. And her son is now devastated because he can't see his mom. Um, and, and this was all gratuitous. I mean, it came out of nowhere. The judge just, for no reason, just comes up with this in a totally unrelated custody case. This is insane. 
Right. And what if the father had um, also not been vaccinated? Are they going to take the child away into foster care? Um, the courts are using vaccination as a chit in negotiations, which brazenly violates the Nuremberg Code. So it, it, it's just really dangerous what they're doing. It, it's it's like an all-purpose Swiss Army knife that you have a problem. Oh, it's it's COVID. Oh, it's the pandemic. They're just using it for anything they can. And just like the global war on terrorism, everything might be a terrorist. There, it, it's ongoing. It's a perma uh, terrorism. It, it could be anywhere lurking. This whole vaccine, or excuse me, virus and the pandemic. It's it's all part of um, using a, um, a a tool that um, has no limits. You can apply it to anything. Indeed. Well, next COVID dystopia story. Cam Newton, the NFL star, has been axed for being unvaxxed. The Patriots and Bill Belichick decided to go with a different quarterback because of the uncertainty around his COVID protocols, blah, blah, blah. What it translates in is he's unvaxxed, and they put him through hell because of that, making him jump through a million hoops, and he barely sort of stubbed his toe on one of those hoops. So forget it. He may be an NFL star, but he's not playing for us because he's unvaxxed. So just because you're a very wealthy uh, celebrity athlete doesn't mean that you can escape this uh, tyranny. Um, well, actually, it's not quite that. I would like it to be presented more like that. But um, I have local Boston sources, and um, they have told me that the jab was actually tangential to it. It really did have more to do with getting a younger model in. So they got that rookie Mac Jones uh, to fill the bill. But the coach in a separate interview said that there are a number of players on the team who are not vaccinated. So it wasn't just Cam who wasn't vaccinated. But the coach also revealed that um, there are a high number of players who have been vaccinated and have gotten COVID. He was surprised what a high number that was. And I thought it was interesting he revealed that. So net, net, um, there was a, a, a vaccine issue that he wasn't vaccinated, but it was really more tangential. It really was more of a business decision, my sources tell me. Okay. Well, always good to have a second opinion about everything. Um, the only thing we can't give second opinions about right now is medical issues because we're on YouTube. We're not allowed to give second opinions about those. Uh, how about Australia? Let's talk about Australia's COVID dystopia. Wow, that's really gone pretty far over there, hasn't it? The feds can now hack and control online accounts of political dissidents without a warrant. Hmm. <laughs> so you start seeing really weird stuff from your favorite political dissident. Maybe that's the Australian authorities that have hacked in and taken over his website or his uh, his Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Uh, this is going pretty far. I mean, are we still uh, a free society if they can just do that without any due process? I don't think so. Australia's just gone full-blown psychotic. It's unbelievable. It's like the the island nation is a grand experiment for how we're going to how they're going to roll this out on uh democrat country, democratic uh liberal kind of countries. Um especially in South um, Australia where they're forcing people to download an app that combines facial recognition and geolocation. I I don't know if they've implemented it yet, but it's coming really soon that the te- the state um, says that people have to text them at random times and they will have 15 minutes to take a picture of their face in the location where they're supposed to be. So if you go outside this highly stringent lockdown they have 
um, you're going to have to take a picture yourself, upload it. And what's scary is if you don't comply with the data warrants, we need your data now, it's a crime that can be punished by up to uh, 10 years in prison. Um, there was recently a woman who uh, she looked totally middle uh, class, mainstream, who was advocating for freedom from lockdowns. And um, they just uh, put her in jail and they, they will only let her out on bail if she announces um, her words and she won't. So Australia is just um, hopefully not the poster child prototype for what's coming to um, another five eye country like us. Hopefully not, uh, but I, I wouldn't bet on it, especially if they do have a big uh, false flag around the anti-vax people, they could get away with something like this. Well, sure, it makes me glad I don't have a cell phone. And maybe in Australia, people should consider a mass movement to uh, smash, burn, or otherwise dispose of their cell phones. If you don't have a cell phone, you can't carry this app around with you. And personally, as far as I'm concerned, a cell phone is just a tracking device that makes phone calls. That's why I don't have one. And I don't really understand why anyone does but maybe that's just me. Anyway, uh, another Australia story here. There's a trucky protest in Australia. I thought Truckee was a town in California, but it turns out that it's what it got. It's what you drive if you drive what the British call a lorry. So you have to learn a whole new language to get by over in Britain or Australia or any place like that. Um, in Canada, you don't. You just have to learn how to speak a lot more nicely. Uh, anyway, uh, so the lesson for the authorities here is if you try to shoot all the truckers, the shelves will be empty. Well, the good news is, is that the government had to back down these mandates that the uh, truckers had to be vaccinated in order to cross into state boundaries. And so this, they actually did a strike and people got out to protest. There was a, uh, a silent protest by many citizens. What was hard is, OK, I know you're opposed to the, the cell phones, but that um, the information about this uh, strike went out. Uh, there was an extreme censorship, and they were able to use the socio social media in parts to be able to get video out to prove that there clearly was, uh, there were cavalcades of truckies on strike because the government was trying to say, no, they didn't do it. They didn't blockade. So then why did you back down? But what's also good, as much as we hate this um, internet and, and the, the tracking that they do, is that truckers in Brazil, France, and the U.S. were able to send solidarity because they themselves were also um, doing um, uh, some kind of uh, blockades. Um, I saw one video that had huge lines of semis, and somebody put the text on it, Canadian borders closed. So who knows if that's really true with so much censorship. So at least these little videos that come through, we can actually see um, huge lines of trucks that this actually happened. It's, it's so hard to even determine what is reality anymore when they censor the little um, avenues we have for uh, sharing. But go truckies. They, the, the government backed down. So the thing is, this is my button here, people. Um, we will not comply. We will not comply. That That is our big uh, statement that we're saying. We will not comply. Um, we have big banners that say that at all of our protests. We will not comply. We must stand up. And when we stand up, they'll stand down. Uh, here, here, Kat. And, and by the way, uh, congratulations on the fantastic demonstration that you organized in New York a few days ago. And people can find out about that by going to my False Flag Weekly news page, which contains all the links for this particular show. To get there, you can go to 
truthjihad.com and then click on the false flag weekly news link. And the first uh, item there will be today's show and look at Kat, the Cat McGuire stuff. Uh, click on, on Cat McGuire, click on the uh, link to her protest in New York. I'm sorry we didn't get time to really cover this because uh, you, you sent all that great stuff out just this morning. But anyway, uh, that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, you got, you got, you've got hundreds of thousands of views on Twitter, uh, lots of coverage, both mainstream and alternative. So it looks like the don't comply campaign is, uh, is, is working. Uh, let, let's hope that it takes off. Uh, and speaking of things you shouldn't comply to, uh, how about this? Complying, uh, to ankle monitors if you're a high school student, uh, at Eatonville High School, um, a, country, a company called Triax is making both the coaches and the students, uh, sports, uh, playing students to put on ankle bracelets and this trace tag has vis- visual and audible sensors that alert the students when they're too close to each other. Well, frankly, all I can say is Allahu Akbar. This could impose Islamic morality on high school students. Sayyid Qutb <laughs> would love it. I'm just kidding, of course. Um, in Islam, we see life as a test. So to be tested, you don't have other people controlling what you do. You have to be free to make your own choices. And if you make the wrong choice, that's between you and Allah most of the time. And uh, so we're not in favor of ankle bracelets for high school students, <laughs> but apparently somebody is. Eaton, Eatonville High School is. <laughs> this is a complete outrage. Oh, it is. And one of the things that got the parents so mad that they uh, halted the program is that uh, the kids were told to take the bracelets off before they went home. So in other words, keep this program secret from the parents. Um, um, some of the people with Children's Health Defense had talked with the parents and the parents were furious that their kids were being used in experiment without parental knowledge or consent. Um, what I'd like to know though is did they make the wrestlers wear ankle bracelets? How would that work? Well, you got to wrestle from six feet away. You didn't know that? <laughs> Wearing a mask and with your body wrapped in cellophane. Hmm, that sounds kind of aesthetically interesting. Uh, put it in the Museum of Modern Art. Anyway, uh, more things to resist. Um, the uh, Sacklers, <laughs> the Sackler opioid dynasty. I mean, ever since the opium wars, a certain uh, group of extremely rich people has been destroying various societies with these drugs. And the latest is the Sacklers, a billionaire family. Now, there are a few Sacklers that opted out of this. So not everybody named Sackler is an evil billionaire opioid seller, just most of them. <laughs> so in this latest news, a U.S. judge has approved a Purdue Pharma bankruptcy plan that basically immunizes, as it were, the Sackler family from civil lawsuits so they can remain billionaires. Uh, good for the Sacklers, I guess. Um, but the rest of us should be getting out torches and pitchforks. Well, what a lot of people don't know about the Sackler family is that it's not just opioids, the opioid crisis that they created. Um, they were very involved in pharma. So Rockefeller Medicine created pharma and petroleum-based medicine away from natural healing. But the Sackler family was the one who created big pharma as we know it today, the lobbying, the junkets, the usurpation of the medical journals. When you look into the Sacklers, they're even more evil than just the the narrow focus of opioids would let you believe. Wow. Doesn't surprise me at all. Okay. Well, let's get away from uh, all of these horrific dystopian stories. Uh, Let's move on to an even more depressing uh, story. The uh, catastrophe in Afghanistan? No, actually, some would say it's something to celebrate, the resistance victory in Afghanistan. However, 
there's a lot of, there are a lot of questions still about where this is all going. Anyway, the uh, massacre at the Kabul airport turns out that it may not have been everything we thought it was. For one thing, a lot of the people killed, we don't know how many were killed by gunfire from U.S. troops. 182 killed total, 1,300 injured. How many were actually shot by American troops? Uh, witnesses saw the Americans uh, shooting from their positions. Kat, uh, why do we have to read Russian media to find this out? Well, because um, what's going on is not really what it appears. Um, I think what's really happening is that there has been a collaboration between the Afghanis and the West for the entire duration of the war. Um, technical people and business people out there would know about something called software as a service, SaaS, which is a software delivery model. Well, I think what's going on it with Afghanistan's collaboration with the West could be called Afghanistan as a service. The platform ostensibly was war, although not a single person can really explain or justify what that war was ever about, except Julian Assange. And there's this dated video going around of him explaining exactly what the whole purpose of Afghanistan really was. It was one humongous money laundering operation. Basically, Assange said it took tax money from the West and fed it into the war machine, which was conveniently located in a remote country. And then it got processed by multiple players, actors, with the end product being jaw-dropping fortunes for global capitalists. So Afghanistan as a service. And for chump change fees in the low billions, the inhabitants were willing to collaborate with the West for years and years. So now we have this new entrant, ISIS-K, um, being uh, recompiled as some kind of ally. Um, so well, yeah, let's thing, look at the next slide when you yeah, talk about ISIS-K yeah, because in there. Yeah. they're blaming ISIS-K for this massacre at the Kabul airport. However, not only did uh, U.S. troops do shoot a lot of the people who died there, but also the uh, Depart- Defense Department had foreknowledge of this and denied permission uh, to U.S. troops to fire a Predator drone that had a lock on the alleged suicide bomber. Very fishy. Um, Well, we know that ISIS elsewhere, like in Syria, are just proxy fighters for the U.S. and Israel. So this ISIS-K, as you brilliantly said, was just a variant uh, to the regular ISIS mercenary proxies. Um, They needed to be put in there because um, the, the U.S. and Israel want ISIS to be a terrorist organization to keep the whole terrorism thing alive. So now that Taliban's new role is kind of aligning with us to fight ISIS, and they become our new partners, now we have the guise of fighting terrorists. So um, it, it will all be fake terrorists to keep um, Afghanistan as a service going. And now the, the, we have uh, new role players, um, ISIS. Um, they just serve another important role also, not just for uh, the global war on terrorism, but to keep terrorism alive, they need to extend it now to America's domestic terrorists. So Terrorist, terrorists, you need terrorists. And if you have to make new allies with the former terrorists to get new terrorists, uh, they don't really care because it's all just a simulacra anyway. Could be. Well, the Washington Post postmortem on the uh, U.S. debacle in Afghanistan uh, tells us that it was all just this huge uh, concatenation of, of disastrous decisions 
bad intelligence and on and on and on. It's actually a pretty interesting read. And I think a lot of that is true. I really do think this is a disaster for the Empire overall, but I think they're scrambling to try to salvage something from it in some of the ways that you just described, Kat. But one of the interesting items in this huge Washington Post postmortem was if you read, you know, like about a 5,000 words down into it, you discover that the U.S. negotiators actually turned down the Taliban's offer to let the U.S. stay with total security control over Kabul uh, for, I forget how long it was, but but the U.S. didn't want that. They said, no, you can have Kabul. We'll just evacuate in panic at the airport and create a disaster. So makes you wonder what the heck the U.S. was thinking. I, I can't figure it out. Well, it's crazy, and now they're trying to blame this poor uh, uh, puppet president, Ghani, um, and he, he's just an academic already out of his league. The Biden failures in this are so colossal, they make the professor look like a seasoned executive. Um, this Afghan exit failure and the Biden decrepitude, in my opinion, are of a piece. Both images telegraph a waning empire on the decline. Um, so is the incompetency shtick real? Where have we seen incompetency before? Besides 9-11, the whole bungled mess of Iraq was supposedly one big act of um, incompetency. Well, I disagree. I think Iraq was and is exactly what at the highest levels they wanted it to be. They don't want a democracy in the Middle East. They want a failed state. So for them, Iraq is a huge success. So here we have the image of a failing, falling empire with Biden perfectly conveying exactly that very message visually every time he steps into the public spotlight and, and also when he opens his mouth. So what might that script be? Well, we're in the midst of a tectonic geopolitical shift right now. And the host, the, the, the center of the uh, empire, the host is toast. The cabal has taken um, it for all it's worth. And now they're down to copper wiring and move on. So in keeping with the revelation of the method, they are using the semiotics of a declining Biden and a colossal war defeat to convey that the empire as we know it is on its last legs, which we're going to see more of in the next slide. Hmm. Well, I'm not sure anybody's in that much control of anything. And I think Iraq and Afghanistan were both total defeats for the uh, U.S. Anglo-Zionist bankster empire. Uh, Iraq is now leaning towards the axis of resistance, uh, putting the writing on the wall for what used to be Israel or what the, what will soon be the former Israel. And same in Afghanistan, the uh, Anglo-Zionist empire. They wanted, a, for instance, they wanted a pipeline there. That's the, the big issue that started this war originally was that the Taliban didn't play ball with Unical, which is the CIA company that was going to put a pipeline across Afghanistan and screw the Russians and the Iranians. And uh, Unical didn't get the contract. Uh, the Taliban tried to give it to Bridas from Argentina, and that's why the U.S. threatened uh, the Taliban with a carpet of bombs rather than a carpet of gold. And that was in July of 2001, and they arranged 9-11 in time to invade Afghanistan before the first snows. So that's the original impetus for the war was, I think, primarily the pipeline and, of course, the opium. And uh, today, there's still a big game being played around the pipeline and, and the opium. And the Taliban, once again, is trying to shut down the opium. And they are not going to be knuckling under to Unical for the pipeline. If they get a deal, whoever they do, they deal with, they're going to be in a stronger position now. So I say the Taliban won. It's a defeat for the empire. 
Um, I don't think so at all. I think they want these uh, these failures there. And as far as the interplay with the Taliban, they'll just be our allies um, in fighting uh, ISIS. I think um, the heroin and the oil pipeline are sort of uh, legacy passe um, things to barter over. For example, with the um, the oil, uh, we're moving into um, all this new climate stuff where oil is going to become passe with Maybe not now in the next couple of years, but very soon. And so I don't think there's concerned about saving this country for the oil. And um, they don't care about the heroin anymore. It's too expensive to produce and it's too much effort. Fentanyl is far cheaper and easier to produce. So legacy heroin, we've got no need for Afghanistan for that. Um, if there is anything in Afghanistan we want to keep our hooks in for, it would be the billion, $1 billion worth of precious metal. But I think that whole concept of the great game from the 19th century of the, the grand chessboard that the big new Brzezinski talked about, um, we're in great uh, geopolitical tectonic shifts. And I don't think it's um, as important anymore to control Central Asia, which is where Afghanistan is smack dab in the middle of it. Um, it shifted. And that's why Jerusalem had to be made the capital, because as a physical center for a neo-great game, Israel is right there between um, Africa, Europe, and uh, Western Asia and can monitor everything. And even war, I don't think they even need any more, these uh, hot spots, concocted hot spots to even launder their money. Um, as we move into a highly technologically, um, highly panopticon society where every human can be in the crosshairs instead of perma-war with boots on the ground, we now have perma-pandemics, perma-viruses and variants, where uh, the jab um, is, the new shot is not the gun, it's the jab. And they're moving the public into this centralized state where with the digitalized technocratic panopticon, um, they don't necessarily need these um, very expensive, ugly, bad optics wars anymore. They're, um, and so I think they're really uh, at a much higher level than, oh, the U.S. was defeated in Afghanistan. Yeah, but it wasn't really a defeat for the highest levels of the powers that be. It's great. We're going to the next phase of the new world order. Well, maybe there's a higher level power than the Anglo-Zionist banksters who are mostly based in the West and who have a huge problem with Russia, China and Iran. And Afghanistan's right in the middle of Russia, China, and Iran. So I, I think it was a very meaningful defeat right in the middle of the grand chessboard. So I'm still with the Brzezinski paradigm. So we'll just have to agree to disagree on that and uh, move on to something we probably agree with, which is that the American troops in Afghanistan uh, were uh, completely insane in terms of their extreme cultural insensitivity. That's not their fault. Um, they are part of an organization that trained them that way. Here's an article in the Washington Post that actually tells a little bit of the truth about this. Uh, pointing out that all, almost all Westerners were just basically locked up inside the green zone in Kabul, never interacted with the country whatsoever. The only interactions the normal Afghan people had with any Westerners was Marines who hated the Quran and wouldn't take off their sunglasses and tried to hit on village women. And this guy was a translator for them, and he just was appalled by it, and he couldn't, you know, no wonder that just about everybody in Afghanistan, no matter how westernized, views the Taliban as the lesser evil. Uh, so I thought this was actually an unusually revealing article for the normally pretty unrevealing Washington Post. 
Um, yeah, it was interesting um, on, on a certain level, but at another level, the interpreter clearly took the mission, his mission as literal. Nobody told him that um, there was a grand money laundering scheme in the guise of a theater of war. So as part of a player in all of this, he was just part of a violent, elaborate Potemkin village to maintain the semblance of bringing democracy and peace uh, to a people. And I agree with you that the people calling these shots are Zio Anglos, but um, I differ with you on uh, what their strategy is. I think they're making it look like a defeat win for them. It's a real good success for, to help them segue to um, their next grand, big, uh, great reset game plan, which has no room for Afghanistan as a war zone anymore. Well, then let's move over to that new grand chessboard center, uh, which is uh, the Palestine, Lebanon, Syria region, the Levant. Uh, and I thought this was a great story by Taxi. I'm not sure. I, I assume that's not the person's real name. Uh, but it compares Dorothy Shea, the U.S. Zionist uh, so-called ambassador to Lebanon, more like she thinks she's actually the uh, occupier-in-chief or the Grand Inquisitor, uh, versus Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, the world's most successful resistance group. And as Taxi says, uh, because Hezbollah has defeated Israel twice already on the battlefield, Dorothy was sent over there uh, to starve the Lebanese population as a punishment for these victories. And it hasn't worked. Iran is now sending fuel ships to Lebanon, and the Zionists are afraid to stop them because Hezbollah has enough rockets to level the Zionist entity. So I don't think they're winning anywhere, Kat. I think the empire is falling apart. Uh, well, I don't know about that, but they, I think that, um, they aren't winning in, um, Lebanon. Um, I really appreciate, um, the Hezbollah there that's, uh, and Iran, um, because unlike poor Palestine, um, that couldn't get the Gaza flotilla ships, um, the, uh, oh gosh, I feel so bad for Palestine. They don't have the muscular power that Hezbollah does and the Iranian ships who are getting. The axis of resistance is working on it. Yeah, but the problem is, is that um, Lebanon really is in extreme chaos right now with the sanctions. There's starvation. They're having a currency collapse. It's it's a very uh, fraught situation. So even though Hezbollah has far more uh, muscle, uh, Hezbollah and Iran together than uh, the flotilla ships and um, the Hamas, um, this is still not good for the Lebanese people. And this tone-deaf ambassador who says, well, they don't necessarily need fuel, she probably gets far more than the two hours a day electricity that the Lebanese are getting. What I thought was weird, though, was this author went into great detail about local issues, foreign affairs, complaints, corruptions. It was very comprehensive. So why on this anniversary, August anniversary of the Beirut port explosion that killed 217 people and left over 300,000 homeless, why did he not say a word of that? That was highly disruptive and very suspicious. Hmm, yeah, that, that's an interesting point. And, of course, that port explosion has been blamed on an Israeli mini-nuke uh, fired on a missile. Um, Veterans Today has done work on that. But to read about that, you'll have to find a different story. But I thought this story was was pretty good as far as it goes. And, uh, okay, let's move on to the red versus blue stories. Uh, first, uh, Ben Rhodes, uh, the former Obama advisor, just published a book in which he boasts of his crucial role in preventing Edward Snowden from leaving Russia. 
Now, the funny thing about this is that Ben Rhodes was also pillorying Snowden for going to Russia. Snowden didn't want to move to Russia. He wanted to go to Latin America. Once he got to Moscow, then Ben Rhodes and his friends made sure that Snowden would be locked up and couldn't go anywhere else. So they could blame him for being an evil Russian commie trader spy. What a scumbag. And that's precisely what Glenn Greenwald uh, points out in this article. Well, what kills me about it is... Um, I think in times past, people kept their roles of that were totally opposite what they were publicizing, um, what they were actually sabotaging. That was kept private. But now they're just outright consciously lying and are so arrogant that they're even putting it in their memoirs of what they were doing. Um, as if we can't put two and two together and re- and we ourselves remember how um, um, insidious they were. It, it has just gotten out of hand their level of um, presumption that they can um, say one thing and do another and then even tell you about it later and not have to suffer any consequences. So that's Ben Rhodes's blurt out, <laughs> admitting that he's a liar in a scumbag. And another blurt out we heard on the Red versus Blue Front this week was the uh, shooter of Ashley Babbitt. Um, I forget his name. You probably remember Kat. Uh, he just blurted out and admitted that, I quote, I could not fully see her hands or what was in the backpack or what the intentions are. So he basically admitted he shot this unarmed person without having the slightest indication that she had any kind of weapon or posed a major threat. That's bizarre. Right. It was everything is just counterintuitive. Um, Officer Bird, Robert Bird, maybe Bird was his name. Um, It it was just counterintuitive when you think that there were police directly behind her. All they had to do was shoot her in the back. So if anyone uh, would have made the call to shoot her, surely he saw the many police officers right behind her. Couldn't they have Um, just went up behind her and grabbed her by the ankles and prevented her from going through the window anyway? Right. So there's too much stuff that's fishy with that. And I would like to point out um, something else that has gotten almost zero coverage. And I'm involved with people who work around the Capitol protest issue. So I know about this. Um, and I'd like to bring to light the case of Roseanne Boyland. She was one of the five people dead on January 6th. Supposedly, she died of an accidental drug overdose that day. But now five eyewitnesses have come forward to say that she was murdered by the D.C. police that day. The police beat her with their batons and boots. And if we could see the footage from the 14,000 body cam videos, it would more than likely show it because one eyewitness himself released his own video showing Boylan being crushed by people the police were pushing on top of her. So you could call it accidental homicide, but Roseanne Boyland was murdered by the police, not by this fake, it was not by an overdose, that's for sure. Um, so there's so much there that is just smoke and mirrors and outright lies. And we deserve, the, the, the public should be able to see those video cams and see what actually happened instead of these trumped up uh, um, police like Bird getting off the hook and giving softball questions on mainstream media and not having anybody really like nail him. What, what are you talking about with just basic third grade questions? Well, these days it seems like if you get killed by police, you're in some ways you might be better off being black than white. You might get more questions asked about the police if you're black. And that's certainly not how it used to be back in the day when I participated in the Rodney King riots and things like that. It's uh, things have really changed and they've changed so much now 
that uh, university professors are arguing for white people to commit suicide. Well, that's what this article says. It's maybe not quite that straightforward, but hey, it might not be constitutional for the government to impose a nationwide white suicide mandate. However, the private sector could create a series of incentives. For instance, Dunkin' Donuts could offer a dozen free donuts a day to any white person who promises to commit suicide, which, of course, is redundant because a couple dozen donuts a day would be suicide anyway. Anyway, we we could have the employers mandating suicide for their employees, universities (laughs) mandating suicide for their students, or some of them could maybe just commit career suicide by looking into what happened on 9-11. Well, you could be required to commit suicide in order to travel, to eat in restaurants, to go to movies, or to use public transportation. And if all else fails, Alan Dershowitz says that the government really does have the right to grab you and stick a needle in your arm and euthanize you. We're yeah. living in a strange world, Kat. Um, I can't even top what you just said, Kevin. It's that psychotic. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, it gets even worse over in San Francisco where they're now not only banning uh, people without their vaccine Gestapo papers from going to movies and eating in restaurants – but they're actually paying people not to shoot people. That's right. Uh, they're finding high-risk people to give $300 a month to not to shoot people. So I just applied for the job since I'm going to San Francisco next week for the 9-11 Truth Film Festival. And I want $300 for every person who tries to bar me from a restaurant or a movie theater or whatever uh, because I don't have my Gestapo papers. And I will be happy not to shoot each of those people for $300. And I'll come back from my trip to San Francisco with a lot more money than I ever make from selling books at events like this, uh, especially since I don't have a fresh book to sell this year. Anyway, uh, there you have it, Kat. Uh, maybe you should apply for that job in New York, too. Well, actually, um, you wrote a great article, Kevin. Um, I loved it. And um, it's not California that's crazy. Um, New York as well has that exact same program. Um, but what I suggest is why not out in the world at large, we give warmongering heads of state money to stop shooting and killing people. So, Kevin, how much money do you think we'd have to pay Israel to not shoot Palestinians? There you go. Uh, it actually could be a lot cheaper then, you know, all of this killing. I think we just solved all the world's problems, Kat, so that's a good time to say goodbye to all of our viewers. Thank you for watching False Flag Weekly News and for keeping Muse the Cat and Cat Food by way of our fundraisers. Uh, it's fun talking with you, Kat. Uh, God bless. Good luck with future fantastic demonstrations like the one that you just organized. And if we're still free uh, next week, uh, it'll be partly thanks to people like you and our viewers. And so, if so, we'll see you all then. Bye. Thanks, Kevin. Bye.